Okay, so while I think we have our uh, a good critical mass assembled here, so while people are tricking, trickling in, welcome everyone. Hello, and thank you for joining me this afternoon um, and for joining the Pacific Council this afternoon. My name is Amy Kashan. I'm our Chief Development Officer here, and I'm happy to welcome you to today's event on India, India and China relations. Uh, as we get started, I want to thank the Edgerton Foundation for their ongoing support. Uh, they underwrote this event and our ongoing series on responding to a rising China. I'm sure many of you have tuned into our past calls on that as well. Before we get into the uh, the meat of the program, just a few housekeeping notes. You are all on mute, um, other than our speakers who are on the line. But we will have time for some audience Q&A here at the end. Uh, that will all be written. So if you have a question, if you look at the bottom of your Zoom screen, most of you are probably old hat at this at this point, but there is a Q&A function. Just click on that, type in your question, and that'll be passed along to our moderator and our speaker. So now without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce the experts joining us today, and I'll turn the floor over to them to get us started. Moderating today's session is Dr. Asima Sinha, who currently serves as the chair of South, South Asian politics, excuse me, uh, at Claremont McKenna College. And she's joined by Dr. Ashley J. Tellis, who holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, Dr. Sinha, Dr. Tellis, thank you so much for joining us today, and I will send it over to you. Everyone, um, thank you to Pacific Council for organizing this conversation and for inviting me. Um, I also want to welcome all the audience members who are joining in. It's wonderful to moderate this conversation with Ashley Tellis. In April 2020, India found that China, China had constructed structures in a disputed area of Ladakh. Soon after, around uh, 15th of June, clashes turned deadly. Um, and uh, soldiers fought with iron rods and clubs with barbed wires. India lost 20 soldiers while China has admitted to five PLA deaths. While Galwan Valley is a new area of conflict, Depsang Valley in the north of Galwan Valley has also seen disputes in 2013 and 2015. So by now, multiple points along the Ladakh border have become conflictual. These disputes suggest that a regional power transition is underway. Perhaps it may be as tumultuous as a global power shift. Many observers note that India-China relations have entered a period of volatility and unpredictability. Even as US-China relations are becoming conflictual, this is evident in the developments in Taiwan Sea in the past few weeks. Now, this is in stark contrast from 2015 when many noted that India-China relations were stable. At that time, Prime Minister Modi had prioritized his relationship with China. The two leaders had visited each other's countries both formally and informally despite flashpoints like the Doklam crisis in 2017. And some saw Prime Minister Modi's overtures to China as an example of Prime Minister Modi's foreign policy successes. The Modi government insisted that India's growing relationship with the United States was not at the cost of its relationship with China. So this sudden conflict in 2020 demolished some of these hopes and may have thrown a serious doubt over Modi's strategy towards China. From India's side, it created a serious trust deficit. From China's side, China's actions in the dark may alienate more countries and are a, are a sign that China is adopting revisionist military actions. So this conflict has complex origins and will certainly have many domestic, regional, 
and global consequences. So I'm looking forward to talking with Ashley Tellis about some of these aspects, especially the origins and the consequences of the conflict last year. Uh, Ashley Tellis is not only a watcher of India-China relations, but also India-US relationship and has a unique perspective. He's both a strategic thinker, but also be, has been a key actor who has influenced the trajectory of US-India relations. So let me turn to a conversation with him now and ask about a first set of questions. Winter is over, Ashley, and winter was supposed to test the military resolve of the two powers and their military capabilities. Uh, we are also approaching the one year anniversary of these conflicts. So if you can give us a little bit of an update about military developments on the ground and the status of the talks, uh, and then we'll get started from there. Sure. Well, thank you, Asima. It's wonderful to be in this conversation with you. And let me start by also thanking Amy and the Pacific Council uh, for hosting this event today. Uh, so let's take a few minutes to just look at the sequence of events. As you pointed out, uh, in mid-June, uh, there was a very serious clash in the Galvan Valley, which resulted in the loss of uh, 23 Indian soldiers and some unknown number of Indian soldiers. The Galvan Valley clash was one of uh, four areas where there were significant Chinese intrusions. In addition to Galvan, uh, Chinese uh, soldiers moved into Gogra, uh, into the hot springs, and uh, in, at the northern bank of the Pangongso. Now, the loss of life in the Galvan Valley was the first loss of life on the Sino-Indian border since 1975. So something had fundamentally changed uh, for the Chinese to have taken these risks. Soon after that event, uh, both countries focused their uh, diplomatic efforts on getting a quick disengagement from Galvan itself. And in July of 2020, the armies act, so a month after the, the physical clashes, the armies actually agreed uh, to disengage. Uh, in August, however, the Indian army upped the ante for the first time and moved into the southern bank of the Pangongso. So it's the southern bank of the lake uh, where the Chinese were in presence on the northern side. And they did that in order to preempt what they thought might be a Chinese effort to occupy the southern bank. So for the first time, India actually moved proactively to seize territories of its own. Now this had uh, a catalyzing impact because now the Chinese had to deal with the reality of the Indians willing to take uh, you know, a muscular stance in terms of protecting their own interests. In September, uh, the uh, foreign ministers of both sides met in Moscow and they agreed that both sides would be committed henceforth to a policy of disengagement uh, and eventually a withdrawal from the frontline positions. However, uh, the disengagement and withdrawal did not actually happen until February of this year. And after the 10th meeting of the core commanders on both sides, there was a mutual agree, uh, a withdrawal uh, agreement announced only in the Pangongso region. Uh, both sides also announced a temporary moratorium 
on patrolling. So where do things stand right now? Uh, right now, Chinese troops are still in place uh, in the Gogra area, in the Hot Springs area, and uh, uh, in the Depsang Plains. Though I must just flag that the Chinese presence in Depsang predates the crisis which began in April and May last year. So it's useful to think of the Depsang issue as somewhat separate uh, from the acute crises which occurred in Golvan, Goldra, Hot Springs, and in Pangongso. So as things stand, there is still Chinese presence on Indian claimed territories. Uh, the forces on both sides have moved slightly away from the immediate front, uh, but are present, uh, present in strength in the depth positions. And both sides have pretty much stayed that way, you know, through the winter, uh, which is really surprising because India and China do not maintain troops and large strengths, you know, on the mountain heights in the winter. But this winter from November uh, until the present day, there are significant numbers of Chinese and Indian military formations uh, in, in their wartime positions, uh, which, is, which is very, very atypical. Do you, do you think that there is, India has insisted that there should be status quo re, uh, restored. Uh, that has been the common refrain. Uh, do you think that is possible at the military level um, in the near future? You're, you're suggesting that it has not yet been achieved, right? Uh, but status quo meaning going back to pre-April 2020 in the Galwan Valley and uh, the middle of the border, not the Depsons Plains. Yes. Uh, which was, so is the status quo uh, going to be restored? Is there some, do you see any will from the Chinese side to restore the status quo or not? Well, if you were to ask me for my judgment, since we are talking about something that is yet to happen, I suspect the Chinese will not withdraw uh, from the other areas uh, besides, besides Pangongso. So they've withdrawn from Pangongso, but I do not think they will withdraw from the other areas they've occupied. And the reason I think that is because the withdrawal that took place in Pangong So was really driven by their desire to get India to withdraw from territories that it had occupied. So India had leverage in that situation, which India does not have in the other areas. So my suspicion is that the Chinese will string this out for as long as possible continue to have diplomatic engagements, but really do not disengage, even though they promised in principle uh, at the September 2020 foreign ministers meeting that they would do so. Uh, in fact, India has made it the precondition. And you know the reasons for the diplomatic impasse, I think can be summarized in the following way. The Indian position is that China should move back to the status quo ante in order for ties to be repaired. The Chinese position, is that India should be satisfied with the Chinese withdrawal at Pangongso, should not make the demand for Chinese withdrawal from other areas a precondition for repairing ties. Instead, India and China should move straight away on repairing ties while leaving the dispute over Chinese intrusions, uh, presumably to be resolved you know, somewhere down the line. So that's essentially where we are today. Yeah. Okay. Um... So I want to ask a question about um, 
uh, reassessment from the Indian side in terms of military uh, capabilities or ta you know maybe ta maybe uh, military experts may call it tactical. I saw a report that uh, India has reoriented a Pakistan-facing strike corps from the Pakistan side towards China. So is India building up military um, capabilities to stay on for the whole year? Has it already tried to build that or transfer those uh, military officers or, or uh, infrastructure towards the China side? I mean, has there, is there a buildup of India's capabilities facing China, especially on this border? Well, let me answer that first at a strategic level, and then I will talk about what is happening at the operational level. At the strategic level, uh, the fundamental shift that has taken place is that India does not look at China anymore as just a competitor with whom it had to find ways to coexist. Instead, it looks at China now as an adversary an adversary that is prepared to change the status quo if necessary by force and by imposing uh, high costs on India. So the big strategic shift is that whereas in the past India was prepared to look for ways to coexist, today India is in a position where it has no choice but to look actively at ways of defending its interests. So that is a fundamental shift. Now, how does that translate into dispositions on the ground? At one level, uh, nothing has changed except for the fact that India today is maintaining forces in much greater strength, closer to the disputed boundaries than it usually does in peacetime. There is a standard procedure that India has maintained essentially in the last 20 years, which is to have forces present at some distance from the frontline, those frontline elements are reinforced when a crisis occurs. But usually both sides have not maintained large military formations in close proximity to each other because the terrain is extremely hostile, the altitude is extremely high, and you know the logistics are extremely burdensome if you have to maintain uh, troops in large numbers at heights of 15,000 feet and above. Now, this winter, both China and India maintained large numbers of troops in division strength uh, on the heights. So India has pushed in almost three new division equivalents uh, in Eastern Ladakh uh, since last year, and the Chinese have an equivalent number of forces there as well. But the longer term shifts are actually more interesting. As you point out, India has now begun to think seriously that the Sino-Indian border, which was a relatively quiet border, you know, for at least about 25 years, could now become the source of active conflict. That is, it might begin to look more and more like the India-Pakistan border. And so India is not only thinking seriously about what it needs to defend them, it has also begun to start doing the military planning to shift forces that are routinely earmarked for Pakistan contingencies for possible reinforcement in the case of a conflict with China. And the, the data point that you flagged, you know, the shift of first core or one core, which is one of India's three strike cores, which traditionally was uh, maintained primarily against Pakistan, now making it a dual task formation, uh, which will also be sort of 
earmarked for Chinese contingencies, to my mind is only the beginning of what will be a long-term reorientation of Indian military capabilities vis-a-vis -vis China. Thank you for that. That's, that's really in-depth and great. Um, so since we are in India, let me actually ask a few other questions about India, especially about the strategic vision. Um, I think as you have mentioned in other interviews that India has been quite cautious before this incident about seeming, seeming to ally with United States in the encircling. You know, as I mentioned earlier too, it is kind of very careful to say that their relationship are not a zero-sum relationship. Um, and some scholars have argued that India adopts hedging, uh, harsh Pant, and there is this notion of soft balancing also. So do you think that now India at a strategic level is going, is moving more towards counterbalancing China and therefore its hesitation about an alliance uh, or greater closeness with the United States would be mitigated? I, do you see some signs of, uh, uh, you know, a different strategic outlook from India? I think your judgment is absolutely on the mark. Uh, for the longest time, India was trying to craft a strategy which would maintain a close relationship with the United States, but without alienating China simultaneously. And that's really what explained traditional Indian conservatism. So India looked for opportunities to build the relationship with China where it could without letting down its guard. And its guard, without letting down its guard uh, entailed two things. It entailed internal balancing. So preparing some minimal capabilities in case relations with China went south. And external balancing was building up the relationship with the US without ever moving in the direction of an alliance because India recognized that that would be both provocative to China and also unnecessary since Sino-Indian relations seem to have reached a sort of equilibrium. I think the limits of that strategy are now being shown in very stark relief. And I don't think India has made a political decision to shift dramatically away from that strategy because it's still trying to salvage whatever it can. Uh, from the previous strategy, but I think they have begun to recognize that they can no longer take risks. They cannot simply count on China's, um, uh, you know, desire for a good relationship with India as a buffer that would prevent them against Indian aggressiveness. And so I think Indian balancing is going to become more and more hard edged uh, in the years ahead. Uh, India will continue to come closer to the United States, but more than coming closer to the United States, I think India will begin to think of China as a multi-dimensional adversary. And you can see this most dramatically, actually not in the military area, but in the economic area. So for example, India has put sharp breaks on what was looking like growing Sino-Indian economic interdependence. Uh, India has cut China out of all government procurement contracts. India has excluded Huawei from the 5G trials. Uh, India has cut off China's ability to use its uh, you know, cell phone um, uh, apps in Indian territory. So uh, on, on a variety of fronts, India is basically looking for ways to decouple from China. Uh, in very targeted ways in the economic space. 
And you will find uh, those counterparts also in the diplomatic space. And of course, in the military space, you know, which I, which I talked about earlier. So there is a much, there is a much harder edge to Indian efforts at balancing China today, which were simply not present uh, before March of last year. We have to, I want to move on to China in a minute, but I have one last issue vis-a-vis -vis India. The current COVID, uh, you know, second surge, how do you think it will affect India-China competition? The Chinese foreign minister and S.J. Shankar had a meeting um, a few weeks ago uh, on it. And uh, so, how, but how will it affect and how, can China make use of it? Because it's offering help to India, but this shows India you know, in a bad light, but also will affect its economic potential. So any thoughts on how the COVID disaster will affect the India-China strategic competition? Uh, this is one of the two big questions for which there are no easy answers today. Uh, to my mind, uh, the Chinese effort at providing as COVID assistance in the midst of this crisis is nothing but an exercise in public diplomacy. It's a way of very subtly, you know, humiliating India, showing that India does need, uh, you know, assistance from the outside and so on and so forth. But the longer term question is really the one you put your finger on, which is will COVID create real disabilities uh, to China, to India's capacity to rise as an economic power. And unfortunately, it is very hard to answer that question with any degree of confidence. What we do know, what we do know, is that Indian economic growth uh, will continue to slow for some time. Um, it has already been slowing since at least 2017. Uh, everyone was expecting before the second wave hit that India would be able to make some sort of a comeback in uh, 2021. And even though it would not touch the pre-17 growth levels for at least another couple of years, uh, it would be slowly sort of recovering, uh, you know, its pace, uh, of its pace of growth. Now with the second wave, I think all those predictions have gone already. And so one must expect that India will not be able to reach its pre-2017 economic growth rates in any sustained way for at least another two years. And that is a very optimistic reading. Uh, China, on the other hand, seems to have bounced back. So if, if we are to make some, if we are to hazard some predictions right now, what I would say is that China certainly has the advantage it seems to have beaten back uh, COVID after its own first wave. It has uh, recovered its economic growth quite impressively. Whereas India still seems to be, you know, at the nadir at the moment and is not likely to reach its pre-COVID growth levels for at least another two years, which means that the delta between uh, Chinese economic strength and Indian economic strength will only grow wider for at least the next two to three years, and that cannot be a consoling, that cannot be a consoling reality for anyone in New Delhi. And also for the U.S. Although I actually want to get to the China's motivations, returning to a little bit of that, um, you know, there is some dispute about why China uh, focused on this Galwan Valley area uh, in a sudden manner. Uh, some scholars argue that this is part of a larger structural trend. Uh, you argued that Article 370 
uh, the abrogation of Article 317 2019 played a role. Is there more evidence for us to sort that out? Uh, why did China do this? Um, is it just you know, uh, taking advantage of an opportunity and hoping that India will not push back? Um, how, do you, how do you see China's motivations? It's going to be very hard to answer this question with any degree of confidence because uh, you know, Chinese decision-making on all these issues is extraordinarily opaque. Uh, the three hypotheses that were advanced uh, at the time in, in April of last year was that one, China was reacting to, to the Indian infrastructure buildup. Right. The second was that oh, this was simply part and parcel of China's wider assertiveness. And then the third argument that I made was that uh, China was reacting uh, to some domestic developments in India of which Article 370 was, was only a part. When I look back at the evidence you know, one year later, I still find it hard to believe that infrastructure, India's infrastructure modernization uh, precipitated this action, simply because India's infrastructure modernization has been underway for years. It's not a new development. Yeah, uh, I also don't think of this as simply part of wider Chinese assertiveness. I think there were very clear uh, efforts that China was making to signal out to India uh, on very specific issues. And the two or three things uh, were, one was a general discomfort with India's uh, gradual shift towards the West, and in particular, the United States. Uh, a gradual discomfort with India's opposition to uh, important Chinese priorities like the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, you know, India was one of the few Asian countries that actually led the charge. And then I saw the events around Article 370 as really precipitating or catalyzing this Chinese discomfort. So if so what does Article 370 and the developments around Article 370, like Amit Shah's speech in parliament and so on and so forth, what does that explain? At best, I think it explains timing, but it's not necessarily a self-sufficient cause because the causes are really structural and they have to do with the larger sources of Sino-Indian competition, both bilaterally and in Asia. Uh, and in that sense, 370 was really a spark uh, that, you know, triggered off uh, something uh, in Beijing, which compelled them to sort of use the opportunity to, you know, as Deng Xiaoping once famously put it, teach India a lesson or, you know, teach the adversary a lesson. Um, but we will never know, we will never know, you know, what the precise judgments uh, that motivated the decision making in Beijing were except for the fact that there was a growing discomfort uh, with Indian policy uh, in the last several years. And that discomfort was both in its external policies as well as its domestic policies. So now in terms of consequences for China, do you think that this conflict has positive or negative in the sense that, you know, it looks like China's uh, strategic vision is centered on its Eastern flank and it requires stability on the Western border, you know, some China's experts might argue that. And now China has, you know, also created a double front problem for itself. Um, and so how do you see the consequences? Uh, you know, is, 
of, of on china's strategic interests and their challenges uh, well i don't see very deleterious consequences for china in the near term and let me explain that by offering two or three thoughts here first i think china historically has been willing to take big risks when it sees important interests at stake uh china did that during the korean war china did that in the struggles with the soviet union in 1969 uh china did that uh in terms of challenging the united states in the vietnam war and so on and so forth so it's not as if the chinese recoil from conflict merely because there are risks sometimes they're willing to take very big risks when they see their interests at stake so what are their interests at stake here i think there are two interests at stake one is they see this as a great opportunity to put india in its place to establish the hierarchy of power and prestige in asia in ways that would be humiliating to india that's a very important uh, chinese uh, objective and two whenever it comes to issues relating to chinese what they call national unification so territorial issues particularly in the outlying areas like tibet where chinese control is still not as robust as they would like the chinese tend to respond with massive overreaction and to the degree that they see india as having sort of uncomfortable ambitions with respect to tibet both politically and with respect to territory the chinese i would imagine would be willing to take the risks of the kind that they did last year so i'm not one of those who believes that china has now put itself in an extremely awkward position uh, simply because its relative power compared to india is so great that you know one could imagine decision makers in beijing simply telling themselves that they can absorb the costs whatever the marginal costs uh, that have arisen because of confronting india they can absorb those costs and sort of continue to live life you know as they wanted to so i think they also get experience at those high heights right oh absolutely oh yeah, absolutely i mean remember the chinese military has not fought a war since 1979 and i'm not making the argument that they are looking to fight a war with india but it's just simply that they accept these as costs that have to be borne as china rises in power and you know demands its place in the sun and so from their vantage point i think the calculus is not the way it looks like from the outside but you mentioned long term you know there could be an argument made that china has is losing friends by the day its relationship with india was not uh, not like friendship but it was somewhat cooperative and stable and um, you know almost every country in the world is turning against china uh, now So, I yeah. agree I think Asima I think this is really what is the heart of the issue right so and there are two ways to answer it one is I do think they have made a strategic miscalculation over the longer term in that they could have at least kept india on the sidelines as opposed to transforming india as an adversary so to that degree this is a net negative from the viewpoint of chinese strategy 
that they now have an India that is much more willing to vigorously balance against China in partnership with other players. But on the other hand, I think the Chinese can afford to be cocky because they've looked at the power trajectories that describe the two countries since 1978. And they have seen the Chinese power trajectory being transformed far more dramatically and far more decisively than India's. And so, you know, you could imagine policymakers in Beijing saying, yes, there are costs to putting India in its place, but these are costs that are completely acceptable to us because the relative balance of power is still in our favor. And until that relative power balance changes, there's no reason why we ought to be nicer to India than, you know, our immediate interest demand. Those are, those are uh, really fascinating responses. Let me just quickly turn to United States and Biden's uh, administration. Um, you know, the, uh, the last time, we, when this conflict started, uh, we didn't have the Biden administration in place. And Biden administration seems to have continued to um, rely on a relationship with India. What, how do you see, did, first, did the Biden administration acknowledge the seriousness of the India-China conflict in 2020? And how does the Biden administration see uh, the China's threat vis-a-vis -vis India's, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the specific conflict? So uh, I think there is a high degree of continuity yeah. in the way the Biden administration has approached the Sino-Indian conflict. Uh, compared to its predecessor. That is, the Trump administration saw this as more evidence that China could not be trusted, that China was a real threat uh, to a stable world order, uh, and so on and so forth. And therefore, the Trump administration moved very quickly in support of India at the time of the crisis. I don't think the Biden administration has a dramatically different view of China. So there may be some changes in US-China policy on the margins, but fundamentally, I think the Biden administration sees China now as a strategic competitor that has to be balanced through collective action on the part of America and its allies. And in this context, India may not be a formal ally, but it is certainly a friend for purposes of the balancing of China. And so I do not expect that there will be any dramatic uh, shift away from the policy that the Trump administration put in place with respect to support of India in this, in this altercation with the Chinese. Yeah, that's also my assessment. The, the challenging issue is that if Indian growth continues to uh, you know, decline and if the COVID experience uh, re uh, reduces India's status, if if not its capabilities, then Biden administration policy will have to go deep. It will have to enhance Indian capabilities and India's growth combined with uh, giving it uh, uh, coalitional power, right? Um, so so to the, my, this yeah. is the central question to my mind. The central question is actually less what the Biden administration will do because I suspect I know their inclinations. Uh, their inclination will be to support India in every way they can. But to be realistic, we cannot support India beyond a point, right? Because ultimately, uh, what the success of the outcome will be depends fundamentally on what happens inside India. And that goes to the question of can India sort of recover, you know, its economic dynamism 
uh, that we saw so vividly after the 1991 reforms. Uh, can India continue to integrate itself more deeply, you know, with the rest of the world and particularly with its friends in economic terms? So these are decisions that Indian policymakers have to make. And I just hope that they make the right decisions because if India fails internally, let me put this very starkly, if India fails internally, there is nothing that the United States will be able to do to prop it up as an effective balancer vis-a-vis -vis China from the outside. Yeah. And so that, that really is something that I think Indian policymakers appreciate. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, the dice seems to be loaded against them right now because the pandemic has really taken a toll uh, of India. And we just have to, you know, wait and see how well India manages it in the next few months. That will really be a, a marker on whether India will be able to make the comeback that we all desire. Yeah, great. Um, I think maybe we can move to some uh, questions um, is there any other issue, Ashley, you wanted to reflect on before we move to questions? We have a couple of minutes before we can move to questions. Is well, I wanted, I wanted to just make one other point. I think India has completely woken up to the Chinese challenge. And as I said earlier, you know, the events of the last year have been a turning point in India's own strategy, right? But I also want to caution against expectations that that implies uh, that India will immediately sort of, you know, move, uh, you know, uh, into the arms of the United States uh, as some sort of a proto-alliance partner. I think India is very conscious of the need to protect its freedom of action. And it will deal with a diversified set of players. So when one thinks of China, you have to look closely at India's relationship with Japan, uh, which is very pivotal. Uh, India's activities in the context of the Quad, which brings in both the United States and Australia, and equally importantly, India's relationship with Russia, which, you know, India still puts a lot of stock on uh, because it believes that the Russians can still play a role of restraining the Chinese, uh, no matter what their other grievances with the West may be. So I think it's important to keep in mind that India does have a suite of options beyond the United States. And India is not going to sacrifice those other options simply because you know, the US happens to be uh, a, an easy partner and available at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, thank you. That was, that was really important. Do you think there's also been a rethinking in India in terms of putting pressure on Tibet or even Taiwan? I think I saw some report that there was a meeting between some uh, I, Taiwan or something in Indian. Um, so, you know, like counter pressures, which well, India has I, been careful to do, not to do. Yes, and I think India will continue to remain very cautious uh, about doing things like that. So there are two big sticks uh, that India has. One is, of course, Tibet. And there is a large expatriate Tibetan population of refugees in India. And uh, the Chinese often think of that as essentially an Indian, uh, you know, knife uh, that is pointed at Tibet's heart, which is that India could use the refugees that are present in its own country as a sort of force that could challenge Chinese occupation of Tibet, right? Uh, India has been very cautious 
uh, it has provided, uh, you know, uh, protection to Tibetan refugees, but it has been very careful about using them as a sort of fifth column, uh, you know, to undermine Chinese power in Tibet. And the same is true for Taiwan. India can build a deeper relationship with Taiwan, which would really drive, you know, Beijing up the wall. And in recent times, people have talked about the idea of India sort of doubling down on the investment in Taiwan. I think India will continue to uh, deepen its relations with Taiwan, but will try and do it as non-provocatively as possible because it recognizes what a uh, you know what the consequences of a too transparent Taiwan policy uh, you know would be for Sino-Indian relations. Because remember, even China has cards to play, right? China can go back uh, to the uh, pre-1980s policies of fomenting insurgencies in India, as it did in the Indian Northeast for you know, 30 or 40 years. China can go back to doubling down on its relationship with Pakistan. So both sides have cards, and I think both sides will be careful about how they use them. No one is going to you know, move recklessly on these counts because the consequences are really, are really significant. Thank you for that. So let's move to some audience questions. Um, I, I am going to read uh, read out the questions to you, Ashley. Uh, so the first question is uh, from Brewer Stone. Uh, he says, uh, Dr. Tellis, can you talk to how the various political economic lobbying constituencies in India with respect to China have evolved in recent years? Had growth in, uh, has growth in trade and investment had any impact how strong is India's populist sentiment regarding China? Now, these are both very good questions, and I'll break it up into two categories. Uh, you know, elite attitudes to China and then popular attitudes to China. Uh, the only lobbies, uh, if you want to use that word, uh, that arose in the India-China context in recent years were economic interests. Uh, which benefited from uh, Sino-Indian trade and um, used uh, India's dependencies on China uh, for, various, for various industrial goods, pharmaceutical raw materials, and so on and so forth, uh, as an argument for caution in how one manages the Sino-Indian relationship. So in, in normal times, uh, Indian policymakers were cognizant of India's economic relations uh, with China and the importance of protecting those economic relationships. Today, I think that the ground has been cut from under the feet of these constituencies. That even though there are some economic elements that profit from the economic ties with China, they, they have no political standing as far as Indian decision-making goes. And you can see that in the way that the Indian government has moved very resolutely uh, to curtail uh, economic ties with China since the crisis of last year. So whatever the constituencies are, uh, they do not uh, have veto powers over the Indian state with respect to how the Indian state manages its relations with China. So that's point number one. Point number two, the more dramatic shift has actually been at the popular level that prior to the events of last year, popular sentiment towards China was actually quite agnostic. I mean, India's security elites always thought of China as a major threat, but the man in the street or the woman in the street, you know, thought of Pakistan 
as the palpable threat rather than China. Since the events of last year, this has changed completely. And there is a popular upsurge of antagonism towards China that actually Indian policymakers are struggling to manage because they want to keep you know, their options with respect to diplomacy open and they don't want to be boxed in uh, by a sharp spike in negative sentiment at the popular level. But that shift in popular sentiment has taken place. And I fear that it will be very hard to repair unless the Chinese make some very take some very dramatic initiatives, you know, with respect to repairing ties. And given Chinese attitudes today, I don't see that on the horizon at all. In fact, what the Chinese did in the last couple of days, which is, you know, to go uh, around to both Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and threaten them uh, against joining the Quad, you know, is a very nice reminder uh, that the Chinese are not exactly in a mood to play nice. So at the popular level, I think they have lost whatever constituencies there were uh, that previously were agnostic uh, about China as a challenge. So, and that will constrain the Modi government. And if Chinese know anything about democracy, you know, the foreign policy autonomy that the Prime Minister Modi might have might be reduced because of that popular sentiment. Well, and he, that's absolutely right. And that's something that, of course, the Modi government is obviously cognizant of as well, right? Because it does want to protect its freedom uh, to deal with China on the basis of national interest rather than, you know, extraneous, extraneous considerations. Right. So I, uh, we have another question uh, from Jerry Green. Um, he says, uh, our mayor, which is Los Angeles, is set to be shortlisted for the ambassadorship to India. I didn't know this. Any advice for him? Well, I would be delighted to see him as, uh, you know, ambassador to India. He's an extremely capable politician. Uh, I would just say that, you know, if he finally gets to New Delhi, uh, he will have his work cut out with him. He will have his work cut out for him. Uh, because even though the bilateral relationship has been on the upswing in recent times, and the Chinese have made you know, their fair share of contributions uh, to bringing the United States and India closer together. Uh, there are still you know, significant uh, challenges on the horizon. And the two biggest challenges that I think uh, you know, the, next Indian the next US ambassador to India will have to manage will be first uh, you know, the growing disputes that we have in the economic space. Uh, particularly on the trade side. This is something that no longer can be pushed under the carpet, uh, particularly as India becomes a big player in the world of e-commerce and data management and so on and so forth. Then the decisions India makes domestically will have international impact. And that international impact will be seen most immediately on, biggest, on the biggest and most successful US companies. So, you know, managing our economic discord, I think, will be a significant uh, challenge that the next U.S. ambassador will have. And then the second issue, which, you know, is less pressing today, but more and more American constituencies are concerned about, is about the weakening of Indian's liberal democracy. And, you know, there are many, uh, there are many societal groups in the United States, and particularly in the U.S. Congress, uh, that are deeply concerned about the deterioration of Indian democracy. And, you know, ordinarily, this is not an issue that should divide us, but it has the potential to. And so uh, while we're doing very well on the strategic side, 
you know, the managing these two challenges, I think, will be uh, very important. And so if, uh, you know, if, if your mayor ends up going to New Delhi, I will, of course, wish him well and, uh, you know, support him in every way I can, but it will not be, it will not be, uh, you know, an easy posting. another question um, from Alex Barker. Has the increased Chinese naval presence in the Indian Ocean altered the balance of power, particularly given the ports it helped build in Sri Lanka and Pakistan? And I want to also add to this, I actually had an um, excellent thesis student who did a research on uh, India-China-Sri Lanka relationship. And her conclusions were that Sri Lanka actually has invited China, you know, into a sphere of influence, as it were, for its human rights concerns, because China began to support uh, Sri Lanka's uh, human rights violations at the international level. Uh, but now India is having to react to that. So there is, you know, she argues that essentially the regional power transition is very evident uh, you know in, in the india sri lanka china relationship so yeah that question about how this will affect the balance of power regionally well the sri lanka case is actually fascinating because in some ways it's emblematic of the reactions of many of the smaller countries on india's periphery right they make their decisions based on what the best interests of the regime demand at any given point in time. And the Rajapaksha government, when it was in office last, almost took Sri Lanka into China's sphere of influence because the Chinese were astute enough, you know, not to let disagreements about human rights and, you know, the destruction of the Tamil population uh, come in the way of, you know, transforming Sri Lanka into a satellite state if they could get away with it. Um, India has become, I think, uh, much more, much more flexible in how it deals with its neighbors, precisely because it recognizes that it has to play uh, the role of a benevolent hegemon. I mean, India is hegemonic in South Asia, but you know, uh, a tough-nosed policy does not always get you what you want. And so, I think India has been very uh, smart in the way that it has managed relations with Bangladesh, with the way it is now managing relations with Sri Lanka. Uh, with the way it's handling the crisis in Nepal. And that's all to the good. That's all to the good. But on your larger question about China's new presence in the Indian Ocean, I think this is a very serious challenge and in many ways, the most important long-term challenge for India. Uh, India has been familiar with a Chinese threat to its, long, to its land borders for a long time. It knows how to deal with that. And it has had experience since 1962 in planning for it. The Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean is new. Um, and, you know, it promises uh, not to go away, at least not in the foreseeable future. And so India is now faced with the challenge of having a Chinese penetration in what was previously a very secure backyard. And it has to deal with the realities of this Chinese penetration, which come in two ways, right? It's not simply naval penetration, because if it was a purely military threat, I think India would have found ways to deal with it, as it will. The problem is that the naval threat is complemented by a deep economic penetration. 
And when you talk of ec economic penetration, that's where India's weaknesses are seen in sharpest relief because India does not have the deep pockets that the Chinese do. And therefore competing with China in economic terms around the entire periphery of the Indian Ocean, I'm not talking of just you know, the periphery close to India, but all the way from you know, the East Coast of Africa uh, in the West, to Southeast Asia, you know, in the East, this is an enormously resource intensive enterprise. The Chinese have the resources, they can buy regimes, they can provide trade access, they can provide markets, they can provide goods, they can even provide advanced technologies as they've been trying to do, you know, by exporting uh, telecommunications technology, uh, you know, around the world. India does not have, you know, India does not have those assets. So what is India to do? India has to essentially play a smart game uh, with very few cards. And the biggest asset India has in this is that at the end of the day, all these countries on the Indian Ocean periphery do desire to remain independent, right? For most of these countries, they don't want to trade their independence uh, for becoming a Chinese satellite state. And India can play on that fear which is both real and genuine on the part of the regional states. And India can sort of do small things to show that it can be a, a contributor to public goods in the region and that it can be a source of diplomatic support. And even if it cannot compete with, uh, with China economically at the, at the same depth, it can still be an attentive partner and that's what India has essentially been doing. So it has doubled down on its diplomacy uh, throughout the Indian Ocean Basin. It has uh, created modest forms of military presence because they recognize that out of sight means often out of mind. So there is a military presence now throughout the Indian Ocean Basin, particularly through the use of naval forces, which is actually reassuring uh, to many of the regional states. And to the degree that India can compete with partners it has worked with the Japanese and worked with the United States to provide economic alternatives, you know, to, uh, to projects that would otherwise have been belt and road projects. So in its own modest way, India wants to stay in this competition. And I think that is, uh, that is a very important, you know, that's a very important presence and the one that the US supports entirely. But this is a long game. Uh, the dangers that you flag are real. India cannot afford to lose uh, the presence game in the Indian Ocean, because if it does, then it is confined to being purely a South Asian power. So if India dreams of playing a bigger role in the Asian space, it has to be able to maintain a competitive presence in the broader Indian Ocean Basin and more generally in the Indo-Pacific. You know, my student, Sandhani Patel, what she found was that India has been offering, India has been offering a lot of credit lines to Sri Lanka and is doing exactly what you're suggest suggesting. But many of those projects are announced, but they are not implemented. Now, the same problem appears with BRI, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but India has to sustain, um, you know, what you said, it has to sustain those um, those foreign policy orientations into real projects and real help on the ground. There is one other, one last question. It looks like uh, is uh, from Alexander Moore. 
is India's current foreign policy something we should associate with BJP or Prime Minister Modi? If the latter, what might a post-Modi Indian foreign policy look like? I, this is a very good question, but I think on the fundamentals, there is much greater continuity with traditional Indian foreign policy than even the Modi government might want to admit. So uh, what is that continuity? The fundamental continuity is that India still seeks to mark its way in the world while protecting its strategic independence. So even though there have been a sharp spike in external crises in recent years, crises involving Pakistan, crises involving China, the Modi government has not fundamentally changed, uh, you know, India's foreign policy course, which was set immediately after its independence, which is it seeks to maintain a uh, freedom of action, uh, a freedom uh, to pursue sort of its own interests without any alliance affiliations. Now, this doesn't mean India will not, uh, you know, work and develop partnerships as appropriate, but it has not, it's been very careful, even with its closest partnerships, like with the United States, to avoid those becoming alliance-like relationships. So on that fundamental point, there is much greater continuity than, than, than people, you know, sometimes realize. Second, India still believes that the long-term solution for India's success in the world has to be economic development and internal balancing. Again, this is a policy uh, choice, which, is, which predates Modi and predates Modi by many decades. And Modi has done absolutely nothing uh, to fundamentally change, change, this, uh, change this route. So what has been distinctive about uh, Modi's foreign policy? I think the most distinctive thing about Modi's foreign policy actually, and this, there's somewhat, it's somewhat ironic, but it actually goes back to Jawaharlal Nehru's activism in the 50s and the 60s. That is, Modi has realized that it will be a long time before India can play the role of being a genuine great power because it has material, uh, it has deficits of material capabilities. But what he has tried to do is to prevent those deficits from coming in the way of an activist foreign policy. Now, remember, this is something that Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru also pursued in the 50s and the 60s. In fact, Nehru was very conscious that India's material weaknesses would not allow it to become a great power in a hurry. And so he substituted material power with moral power. Now, Modi is not, uh, you know, doesn't talk very much about moral power, but he does have a great faith, a great confidence, and a great pride in India's civilization ethos. And he has not been shy about talking about India's civilization and you know, the benefits and the importance of recognizing India's civilization. So in a very ironic way, even though Modi you know, does not see eye to eye with Nehru on many things, uh, he has pursued a, policy, a foreign policy that punches way above India's material weight. And I see that as being one of the most distinctive elements of Modi's foreign policy in recent times. General Green is going to close down this session. Thank you, Ashley. I really uh, you know, enjoyed that session and I hope to be in touch uh, after this.
It was a pleasure, Asiman. I'm, it's delight. I'm so delighted to see Jerry, with whom I worked many years ago. And it was great, Jerry. Thank you for inviting me to Oh, Ashley, thank you. And um, Nasina, thank you so much as well. Um, one can never spend too much time talking about and looking at India. So I hope we can call on you both again. And I really want to thank you both. And I want to thank all of our audience for, for joining us today. So thank you so much. Take care. Ashley, really good to see you. Likewise, and of course, happy to help anytime. Take care yeah. of yourself, both Thank of you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ashley.